You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome today. We are moving through the book of James in a series called We Were Made for This. And today, our scripture reading is from James chapter 4 and 5. You can follow along on your screen. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. All God's people said, Amen. Again, if you're just joining us today, welcome to Mosaic. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're glad you're here. Even though we're not meeting in person, we're gathering online. We know that many of you are moving to Austin. You've moved to Austin even in the middle of the global pandemic, and you're finding us here online, and we're so glad you have joined us. All right, uh, I want you to do something with me now for just a moment. I, I want to. I want you to do something with me. I want to, uh, without trying to make you too sad, I want you to think all the way back to this day, a certain day. It's New Year's Day of 2020. Remember that day? Remember where you were? Remember how you, how you celebrated? I remember that our family, we, we stayed up late. We played a bunch of games. We watched our favorite show. We ate way too much chocolate. And we thought about what the coming year 2020 was going to be like. And I'm sure you did too. We had a bunch of plans for this year. I'm sure you did too. I had a bunch of plans for this year. The church had a bunch of plans for this year. That's what we do. We make plans and then... 2020 happened, and everything has kind of changed, hadn't it? It has. Now, there's, of course, still beauty, still hope in the middle of all the, all the pain and loss and chaos. But if we were listening, if I had been listening, we would have kept in mind something that James, the writer of this little book, the brother of Jesus Christ, 
has been trying to tell us about human existence for about mm, the last 2,000 years. Here's what James said. Maybe you picked it up in the reading. He said, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city, that city, spend the year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And if those aren't the truest words in all the Bible right now, I don't know what are. But not only are they the truest, they're also the wisest. They're the wisest. And part of the reason they're the wisest is because of what James is doing right here. James is he's channeling. He's doing a, a massive call back to the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, especially one section of it called wisdom literature, stuff like Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs, which says stuff like this. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And so this is what James does throughout the book, as we've seen, if you've been following along. He keeps one eye on the Hebrew scriptures, one eye on his resurrected brother, Lord, and God, Jesus of Nazareth. And James shows us week by week what we were made for, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And so today he's going to show us in this fascinating section, here's the big idea, that we were made for wisdom. We were made for wisdom. We were made to live wisely, to live not just according to the rules, though those are important, but to live according to reality, to reality. So what does it mean then to live wisely right now in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of injustice? What does it look like to live, on the other hand though, foolishly, out of touch with reality? And how can we know the difference. That's what James is going to aim us toward here. So let's take a look at this passage in four parts. We're going to look today, number one, at wise living for today. Number two, wise planning for tomorrow. Third, wise actions for a moment. And fourth, it's all because of a wise ending for forever. Wise living, planning, actions, and an ending. Here we go, all from James 4 and 5. Let's begin here in this first section. Take a look at wise living for today. What does it mean to live wisely? According to reality. Well, look at verse 13, how James starts. He says, now listen, you who say. So he's about to speak to a category of people here, people who think a certain way, act and plan and talk a certain way. And he's speaking to people who live plan, talk, think, and act as if they are actually in control of their lives. Those people, the people who live as if they really were in control, are marked, he says, by a certain characteristic. Here it is. He says, as it is, you, here's the word, you boast. You boast. Now, this is kind of an old school word here, but the Bible writers understood, this is so important to catch, they understood boasting as a kind of spiritual category, a category of behavior. Think about what the prophet Jeremiah said, if you know that passage back in chapter 9, I believe. He says, let not the wise man do what? Boast in what? In his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his what? In his strength. Let not the rich man, what? boast in his wealth. Why? Because to boast is to make the foundation of your life something other than the person, nature, 
character and heart of God. See, boasting was something that ancient cultures did in particular. You sort of see this in any epic sword and sandal movie or a lot of science fiction movies had this with battle scenes where on the eve of battle, like the general or the king or whoever, the leader of the army gets up and sort of proposes a toast and they give a big speech about how they're going to go out and win tomorrow and defeat their enemies because they're good and the enemies are bad and, and all the soldiers and the, the people in the army sort of go, yeah, you know, we will win. That's a boast, right? They say, we know this will happen because of how great we are. And you see this from time to time in public today, sometimes with professional athletes who guarantee the win in a big game. And when they do that, I kind of root for them, actually, because it's always amazing to see if they can pull it off. But sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't happen because just because you say it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Just because you plan it doesn't mean it's going to go like you want. Why? Well, James hints at it here. He says, as it is, you boast, he says, in your arrogant schemes. He says it's arrogant. It's a fascinating word. It's the Greek word, alizonea. This is a word that was used to describe the sort of like the ancient snake oil salesman, the wandering quack, the huckster who peddled medicines and guaranteed better health and better medicines just because they said they had it. The point is, James is saying, if you fundamentally claim you have control of your life, of the future, you're no better than a carnival barker or a Ponzi schemer. But James goes even beyond this. He says it's not just arrogant. He says it's evil to believe you have fundamental control of your life. Why? It's because this kind of boasting is out of touch with reality. And therefore, it gives people false hope. It harms them. It's evil. The reality is what James wants us to see is that the belief that we have fundamental control over our lives is an illusion, and that's what he's come to break. Now, probably right now, all of you, you're watching me on the screen, you're like, yeah, that dude's got a point, James has got a point, you agree. Why? Because it's 2020, and we've all seen this play out where we literally do not know what a day will bring. But even though it feels disorienting and it's surely not fun, living with this kind of understanding is actually how a whole lot of the world lives and has lived, probably will continue to live for forever. Someone by the name of Malcolm Gladwell, you may know the name. He's a, a writer for the New Yorker. He's a, a person of Christian faith, actually. He's, he's written a whole series of fascinating books on how life works. He's sort of one part sociologist, one part storyteller. And a few years ago, he, he wrote a book. I, I think it's a good one. It's a good read. It's, it's the book called Outliers. Outliers, the subtitle being, you can see it right there, The Story of success. And in it, he writes about successful people as different as, as the Beatles, as NHL hockey players, as black attorneys, as Jewish business people. And he points out what you should know, that yes, success many times comes from hard work. Yes, success comes because you're talented, but success also comes and therefore failure can also come. Many times through forces 
outside your control. When you were born, where you were born, how you look when you're born, a person who was just there at the right moment or right time sometimes succeeds or fails. You, think about it, you could have been born blind on a mountain in Tibet in the 13th century, but you weren't. You're born right here, right now. The point is, Gladwell says, Bible insists, is that not only is control in life an illusion, not only is your success not just due to your being awesome, smart, talented, hardworking, but sometimes your success and your failure are due to forces outside your control. This is what the Bible would call reality. Proverbs 13 sort of sums it up altogether. It puts it like this, a poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. So what was this person's failure in a sense, poverty attributed to you? What's poverty sometimes a result of? Larger forces outside a person's control, which act on an individual or a group. See, wise living for today then looks like living with the understanding that we are not always in control of our lives. So, so if we're not always in control, if fundamental control over our lives is an illusion, how then can we even think about the future? How can we even think about tomorrow? Well, let's take a look. Number two, what is wise planning for tomorrow then look like? Well, the Bible, of course, never tells us not to plan. It's not against strategic planning, stuff like that. But when we plan, which we have to, James points to what ought to go underneath it all. He says, verse 15, Instead, on the other hand, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, this is the uniquely Christian uniquely biblical view of how we plan, how we move towards tomorrow. And of course, you can see the Apostle Paul in his writings doing the same thing over and over. Look, he says stuff like this. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I hope to spend some time with you soon if the Lord permits. Now, I don't think this is saying that you've got to say this every time you book a fancy dinner reservation or you got to add this little phrase to the bottom of your, your kid's birthday party. It's like, you know, little Susie will be having a Dora the Explorer themed birthday party tomorrow at the park at 5.30. You're invited sincerely, Susie's mom and dad. P.S. Don't forget to only RSVP if the Lord permits. Now, I don't think this is saying, I could get a little weird. That's not the application of this anyway. We'll get to that. But how do we think about our plans then in a way that's in touch with reality? Here it is. You can only do that by holding together underneath your plans, the twin truths that James holds up to us, two truths in tension, twin truths that the Christian faith holds together. I'll put it like this, which is that your plans matter, but God's plans matter most. Your choices matter, but God's choices matter most. Your actions make a difference, but God's actions make the most difference. Proverbs 19 summarizes. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now this right here, this holds together what neither Americanism can on one hand or atheistic scientific fatalism can 
on the other. For example, Americanism, I'll call it that, says, Americanism says, you can be whatever you want to be. Or again, in the final words of the illustrious Doc Brown to Marty McFly in the Back of the Future trilogy, he said, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Yeah, that sounds nice. The future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. It sounds good. It feels good. It plays great in a time travel movie. But think about that line. Think about that worldview. Now think about 2020. Are we really in control of the future, of all that happens? God, I hope not. I hope it's not all up to us. I hope it's not up to you. I hope it's not up to me. Because if the future is only and exclusively up to us and me and you, we are really doomed. So Americanism, on the one hand, it won't work. But neither does atheistic, scientific fatalism on the other. That comes from even brilliant people like the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, who said, because there's no God, because your genes are pre-programmed, you actually have no choice in how you do, what you do, how you act, what you think, or how the world goes. Your choices, their actions, they appear like they matter, but they are ultimately meaningless because you've got no choice. It's fatalistic. Oh, but both James and the person of Jesus they show us a unique perspective that our actions absolutely matter, but that God has a purpose that prevails. You see, if your choices, if they didn't matter, if your plans didn't matter, God would have no basis for holding humanity accountable for its evil. But if God's choices didn't matter most, you or I would have blown up our lives a long time ago. I know I would have. You, you would have married that bad boy with the cool car or married that, that, that woman who gave you that long look instead of being happily quarantined with your spouse right now. Or maybe you're single and you're living more happily alone as a single person instead of unhappily married because somehow God intervened and helped you avoid a permanent, lifelong catastrophe. See, in his heart, a man, a woman, a person plans their course, but the Lord determines their steps. Our choices matter, but God's choices matter most. So let's apply this right now, this biblical worldview. With this in mind, with these twin truths as the foundation for reality, how can we live? How can we live right now? What are wise actions right now? Number three, let's look at some wise actions for this present moment. Let me give you quickly three things, three things, three ways to apply this, three things you can do with this teaching right now. First, here's what I would encourage you to do. This means that you can obey God more fervently. You can obey him uh, more fervently. The legendary missionary, a man by the name of William Carey, he wanted to see the people of India come to know Jesus. He wanted to go share, preach, live the gospel there to the people of India. And he begged uh, his church in his day, begged the people there to send him over there. But they wouldn't and they, and they wouldn't do it. But one day, the people of his church, the church leaders had had enough. William Carey's pestering. And they famously, really infamously, said this. And one church leader, his words have been preserved for us all. He said to William Carey, he said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to save the heathen, 
He will do it without your help or mine. All right, <laughs> what's that? That is a fairly offensive misunderstanding of providence and of Proverbs, a misunderstanding of what James is saying, but because he, William Carey, grasped reality. 1793, at the age of 32, Carey set off for India with his wife Dorothy and his three young sons, and he wrote this in his diary. In February of 1975, he wrote this. He said, this indeed is the valley of the shadow of death for me. Oh, what I would give for a sympathetic friend to whom I might open my heart. But God is here, who not only has compassion, but is able to save to the uttermost. See, William Carey was pressed on the inside to obey God more fervently, to preach and proclaim and to live the gospel more boldly because he knew the souls of human beings were counting on him. He knew his choices mattered. And so he obeyed God even more fervently. That's number one. Second way you can live wisely for this moment. If you understand this now, number two, you can also live more justly. Not just obey God more fervently, but live more justly. And James presses us to see this application in particular. It's one of the longest sections of the book where he has some really harsh words for business people leaders who engage in unjust business practices. These people don't pay their workers a fair wage. They perhaps hold the wages overnight, that is. They don't, they don't pay on time. They don't pay what they agreed or when they agreed. And James, right here, channeling both Proverbs and Genesis. James says, like the blood of the younger murdered brother Abel. He said, verse four, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Let me ask you, do you think the Bible, the God of the Bible cares about social justice? I think he does. Do you think God has something to say to those who willfully, even perhaps ignorantly because they don't ask the question, who take advantage of the poor? Do you think, do you think God's got something to say to those who won't listen to the cries of those on the underside of power? See, if we fail to take the poor into account in a way, James is saying, like Cain did to Abel, we're putting them to a kind of a death. Their cries come up from the ground, from the fields themselves, James says, and even if others can't, won't, or don't hear the cry of the oppressed, James says, you can better believe that God does. Now, why would someone live like this? Why would they ignore, engage in unjust practices? Here's why only if they believed that they were in control. It's if they were all that mattered. If this life was all there is, only if they believed that there was no God who would hold them accountable, whose choices mattered most. See, in other words, James is saying not only how we treat others, but how we handle our wealth immediately reveals what we believe about what reality is. If the reality is that there is a God who holds us accountable for our plans and our actions, then we will be both generous with our money and just toward others. We'll listen to their cry. 
Third application, number three. Here's what you can do with this if you understand it. You can also suffer more hopefully, obey God more fervently, live more justly, suffer more hopefully, because James points us right here to a quality, to a characteristic of someone who holds these twin truths of biblical reality in tension when it comes to going and living through hard times. He names this magic quality three different times. Look at this, verse 7, 8, and 10. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. You too be patient, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience, the face of suffering. See, James is saying that patience is the mark of a wise life and the key to suffering with hope. Look, look, look at how the proverb describes the power of patience. I love this. Proverbs 16. The writer says, better a patient person than a warrior. Better one with self-control than one who takes a city. See, this is saying that what matters even more than having power, though that's important, is having patience. What matters more than being a leader, though that's important, and the Proverbs talk about that a lot, what's more important is being able to be a long sufferer. Why? Oh, here's why. Because the reality is, you know this, you might not always get power. You might not always be the leader. And if you are, it doesn't last for forever. And what are you going to do about it? Here's why patience is better. It's because what a warrior wins with fighting, a warrior can lose through fighting. Because a warrior only has one tool in his or her tool belt. See, to the warrior, all the world is a nail. He or she, just a hammer just fights everyone, fights everything. And if you live by the sword, inevitably, Jesus says, you'll die by the sword. With the measure you use to others in judgment, Jesus says, you will be judged and measured. This is reality. But please, please, please don't confuse Bible patience with passivity. No, no, no. The patient person, the biblically patient person is radically engaged with the world, just with a different undercurrent flowing through his or her heart. And here, here is why patience is so powerful. Unlike the warrior, what a patient person wins, a patient person keeps. Why? The word itself tells you. The Greek word literally means one who never gives up, one who literally never loses their heart throughout it all. Let me ask you what, what in part, in part, won World War II for the British people? It wasn't British fighters alone. It was Winston Churchill's patience who said, we will never, we will never ever give up. We will fight them in the air. We will fight them by land. We will fight them in the sea. No matter what happens, we will never give up. Hitler boasted his way to defeat. Churchill patienced his way to victory. So can we. See, patience, perseverance, never ever giving up in the face of suffering, like James says, like Job did. Being in it for the long haul wins in the long run, what only warring can. See, understanding that God is at work, his choices matter most. Somehow, it helps us suffer with hope and not quit. All right. Now, why is all of this true today? Why can we do these things, obey God more fervently, live more justly, suffer more hopefully? How can we do all this? Maybe even most importantly, why? 
should we do all of this? Here's why. It's because there is one more thing that is wise to see. And it's wise to see because it is inevitable. There is something, James says, something that is coming into this world that is as inevitable, as he puts it, inevitable as the autumn and spring rains, as inevitable, he's saying, as the seasons, as the tides, day and night, as the forces of the world. What is inevitable, most ultimately and fully real reality is, he says, is that there is, number four, is coming into the world, a wise ending for forever. A wise ending for forever. What's that? I'll start like this. In the middle of all of James's condemnation of how the rich people misuse their money, there's this incredible phrase. If you, if you blinked, you missed it. In verse two, he says, chapter five, your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. At first you're like, okay, I get it. Yep, he's saying clothes don't last. Like if you're a parent, a grandparent, you got you know, nieces or nephews, you're like, I get it, clothes don't last, right? But then he says, look at this, your gold and silver are corroded. But hang on a minute, commentators point this out every time, gold and silver actually don't corrode. Gold and silver actually last. Real gold, real silver aren't like fabric or clothes. So what's he saying? he's saying. James isn't just saying that stuff doesn't last for the moment. He is saying that nothing lasts at all. Even the things you think will last, he's saying, don't and won't. And it's about to get a little tougher before it gets better. Here's what James is imploring us to see, which is this. He's asking us to see that all things are falling apart. Things are falling apart right now. The universe is falling apart. Long before the second law of thermodynamics, James sort of put it like this, right? I mean, he's saying things are always going towards disorder, randomness, and chaos. Like, like the universe in general, it's kind of like your, your dorm room. Hey, if you're a college student or your car, or if you got kids, it's like your minivan, the french fries and the cracker crumbs and the soda straw wrappers, they don't ever get fewer. They only get more and more, and it gets worse and worse. Another way of putting it is that the universe is like that piece of chicken that you took off the grill last night. You, you take that thing off, you let it cool for, say, mm, six months. What's going to happen? It's not just going to cool. It's going to decay. It's going to rot. And here's the thing. The same thing is happening, James is saying, right now to our clothes, to our gold and our silver, and our bodies at a certain slower pace, though we don't like to think about it. The poet, great poet, someone by the name of W.B. Yeats, he put it like this. He said, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And he wasn't just talking about your waistline during COVID. No, he's talking about the universe. James is saying, like the writer of Ecclesiastes put it, that life under the sun, that is life with no God, life uh, with no openness to heaven, that life is meaningless on its own. It all falls apart. Oh, but I want you to hear this today. That seeing this, the futility of life without God, that's a gift. It's actually a gift because it points us to how and why we can know we can live lives that in the long run will matter. Here's why. Here's how James says. 
He says, oh, you got to stand firm, brothers and sisters, because here it is. The Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, the judge is standing at the door. James is telling us what rescues us from life under the sun, from the futility of life, is knowing that one day Jesus of Nazareth, who himself said he would sit as the judge of the world, that one day he will return. How could James be so confident of this? I mean, this above all else that he writes, this gave James poise, confidence, uh, perseverance. How could James make this claim? It's because a few years before he wrote this, James the Just, by the way, that's what people called him. James the Just watched his own brother, Jesus of Nazareth, the maker of the world, go to a cross where he became unmade. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, to become wickedness itself. Jesus fell apart. He couldn't, didn't hold. He went to pieces. Mere anarchy was loosed upon him. He came apart so that we could be put back together. Jesus got what we deserve, the corrosion of this world, so that we could get what he deserved, a happy ending. See, his day of disaster was our Good Friday. But James, oh, he didn't only see Jesus die. He was way better than that. James saw Jesus be raised back to life. He saw his brother come back from the dead. And when your own brother repeatedly claims to be God, repeatedly predicts his own death and resurrection, and then it happens, and then you see it with your own eyes, you're going to tend to believe whatever your God brother says about the future. And what Jesus also said, what he promised was that he would one day return. He would come again. And at his return, he has promised to make all things new, to reverse the corrosion, the anarchy. Jesus, see, has promised to be the wise ending of the universe, the one who sorts everything out perfectly. And James says we should stand firm in that and to live, therefore, as a Christian right now in our present moment, to live as a Christian for Jesus on mission, if you will, is to live like we believe that. And this is why, let me tell you, final thought here, why you and I, why we cannot be passive as Christians. Patient? Yes. Peaceful? Yes. But passive? No. Were the original apostles who saw this, received this, were they patient? Yes. Were they peaceful? Oh yeah. Were they passive? Never. Why? Because they understood that they, like we, have a job to do right now. You've got a job, which was to, is to make Jesus known and to bring a piece of creation back to him. And it's going to take everything that we have, nothing less. It's going to take your energy and your choices. It's going to take your plans. We're going to have to stand firm, even in suffering. And this is why, this is why, 
You and I, why? We're going to open our mouths. But we're going to share Jesus with people and with our neighbor and with our city. That's why we're going to be deeply involved in our church community to the degree that we can right now. Be deeply involved in the city so that people can see Jesus in us. And that's why you're going to work and you're doing your job uh, with excellence and integrity. That's why we parent our children right now, even when it's hard, with compassion and intentionality. Because they are part of God's reclamation project. Yes, even your children right now in your home. They're born in. They're living through a pandemic. But what? What if? What if our plans for them were somehow changed so that God's plans for them could somehow come to pass? Wouldn't you want that to be true? I know I would. Like the hymn says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. Friends, we were made to live wisely. We can do that as we remember that our actions and choices matter and that God's matter most in the end. Hope you can say amen to that. Let me just pray for you right now and ask that God would help us live wisely in our present moment. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We ask you to help shape us. Would you shape us with your words? Shape us by your words. Shape us by your actions. We saw that though people intended to put you to death for evil, that God raised you up. And Lord, you're doing something that we can't even imagine. Against even all hope, we trust that you're working in the world today. And I'm praying for every person listening to this, in their situation, in their pain, in their trauma, in their hopelessness, that you, you would raise their heads and their hearts. You would be the lifter of their heads. That you would speak to them right now and let them know that their actions and choices absolutely matter. That you're taking those and using those and making them more than we could ever ask or imagine. To you be the glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.